Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. My name is Joe Stoll. I'm a huge Tolkien fan and proud Silmarillionaire. I hope you all have taken your antidepressants, because this episode marks the beginning of the longest, and in my opinion, most tragic, tale in the Silmarillion. Obviously, this could be the start of none other than Chapter 21 of the Silmarillion of Turin Turinbar. We discuss a lot of different topics, ranging from the Curse of Hurin, strong-willed women, a large play on names, angry dwarves, and playing the blame game. So, let us begin our venture into this aptly named episode, Don't Blame It on Turin, Blame It on the Boogie. Okay, good evening everybody and welcome to this week's installment of the Silmarillion Seminar. I hope everyone is feeling upbeat and perky for this evening's session because tonight we are starting the longest of the tales in the Silmarillion and by far the most depressing, the story of Turin Turambar. Um, though, of course, the tragedy of Turin Turambar is certainly going to be one of the main things that we're going to want to be talking about as we go through this tonight. Now... Uh, we have a bunch of uh, a bunch of things. To, first of all, uh, one kind of ground rule that I want to start at the beginning. This is, as you know, our narrator warns us at the very beginning, the longest um, of all of the tales. I, I love the bit at the beginning of the story of Baron and Luthien, where it was like, "This is the longest, save one of all the tales," and then we get the uh, the news that this is the one that's longer. Um, so we're not going to do the whole thing tonight, and I want to try, you know, there's so much that we can do. There are some definite sort of themes which uh, which recur throughout the story, and, you know, so I, I'm sure there's going to be a little bit of jumping around that we're going to end up doing, but I, I don't want to, I want to keep us from being a little bit too scattered. So I want to stick to the first half, that is, up through, um, before they get to Nargothrond, okay? So after Turing kills Beleg, and he sort of comes to himself... Uh, by the shores of Ithil Ivrin, I want to. Um, I, I, that's where I want to. The, the the line, which is sort of our stopping point for today, um, is one of my favorite lines in the whole story. When uh, when Gwyndor tells him that he has heard that Morgoth has placed a curse upon Hurin and all of his kin, and Turin says that I do believe. Right. That's 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 our ending point. Um, which means, I know that people want to talk about uh, Glaurung. I know that people want to talk about a sort of the you know, about about Neonor and his relationship with Neonor um, and Morrowind in Doriath and all that stuff, but we're not going to talk about any of that stuff tonight. Um, I want to save all of those things because um, we, we we get no reference at all to the dragon in the first half of this story, really. So um, we're just going to be looking at uh, we're going to start with Horn and Morgoth, which I, I said last week we would we would start off with that to kind of set up the story, and then we're going to look at Turin's early life, his time in Doriath, his time among the outlaws, and then the horrible, horrible tragedy of the death of Beleg. So, just wanted to clarify that that's where we're going to be. That's where we're going to be headed, and if we can all try to be sort of disciplined in sticking to that, we'll get plenty of time to talk about the other things next week. Does that sound all right? Everybody, everybody cool with this plan? Okay, cool. Now, so let's start off, as I said, with... Well, actually, I want to... Uh, 
Matt, on the uh, on our our class notes here, um, you were pointing out something which certainly should be recognized: the 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 textual history of the story of Turin Turinbar is really long and really complicated. This is one of the great stories. There are a couple of the stories from the Silmarillion stuff. I mean, as we've mentioned in times before, Tolkien was writing these things from early on. You know, many of the Silmarillion uh, stories have their roots in some of the very first stories he ever wrote. Um, you know, many of these things are things which were really kind of at the at the at the you know some of the cornerstones of his whole imaginative enterprise throughout his life, and he revised them and revised them over the course. In some cases, of like sixty years, he was revising some of these stories, and there are a few stories which were sort of his great central stories, stories that he re- reworked continually and tried telling in different modes, sometimes short, sometimes long, sometimes verse, sometimes prose. And the story of Turin Turambar is one of those. Baron and Luthien is another one. Turin Turambar is another one. So there are a bunch of versions of this. This is in the Book of Lost Tales, the very first collection that he wrote. He started uh, an epic poetry version of this story. In fact, this one was in alliterative verse. Uh, when he's when he started writing it, he didn't get all that far. Um, we talked, we referred a little bit to the epic poetry version of Baron and Luthien um, that he had started, and he actually got a good deal further along um, in the Lay of Lathian, um, and that one was in rhyming couplets, whereas the um, the 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 story of Turin Turambar was in um, was in alliterative verse, like like Anglo-Saxon metrics, as I said, um, and he didn't get quite so far in that one. But he did longer prose versions. Many of you are familiar with The Children of Hurin, which is sort of the novel version of the Turin Turambar story, which Christopher Tolkien finally released after working on it for several decades. Um, finally released back in 2007. And um, I would say this is hard. And I know that a lot of you are thinking about The Children of Hurin. I know, you know a bunch of you have mentioned it in our class notes. I kind of want to talk about the I kind of want to talk about the children of Hurin as little as possible. Um and as I say that's sort of a hard call because you read the children of Hurin and you see all of this all of this uh all this background stuff, you know, all the you know this, so much more stuff from his childhood, so much more detail of his time in Doriath, um a lot more about his relationship with the outlaws and and we meet individual characters among the outlaws and see his relationships with them. Um it, it's it's certainly there's no question that it is a you know a, it's a much richer story um, seeing that whole thing but that is also in some ways it's kind of a different story and uh, you know I want to be I think what's sort of only fair to do as we're going through the Silmarillion here is to be looking at the version of this of the Turin story that we get here in the Silmarillion context remember over the last couple of weeks we've been looking at some moments where um, it, you know those that one moment in the near Nith Arnodiad last week where I was making this point, where we can see the narrative shift, where the, the narrator is kind of, um, you know, talking about the big picture and doing his sort of chronicle summary of, like, the years and the plans and the big picture and what's going on, and then we'll kind of zoom in and get some more detail and actually describe uh, in a sort of closer narrative form a particular scene. In that case, of course, last week, uh, the story of, of the, you know, uh, the charge of the army of Fingen, or the scene which ends with that charge, the disastrous charge, of course, of our new f- friend Gwyndor. And um, I... 
So, but basically, most of the tour in Turambar story is told from that kind of higher perspective, um, not the in close detail. And I, I, I want, therefore, to kind of talk about this story on the same grounds that we're talking about the other stories. Um, and remember, as I said, all of this, you know, Tolkien has done a wonderful job of giving the impression throughout these versions of these stories that there do exist the there's do exist these more detailed versions that if you really want to hear the whole story you should hear this song sung in full um whereas here i'm just giving you a synopsis and of course the difference um is that with this story we the modern readers have available to us um one instance of that fuller more detailed version um which we might be inclined to go and turn to as the narrator sort of encourages to encourages us to do many times when they're not available in fact and often don't even exist really um so uh that's something that i think is really tempting. And, you know, I, I would like to talk about the children of Hurin. In fact, I hope to get a chance to talk about the children of Hurin before too long. Um, uh, I'm, I'm working on something which I can't announce yet, but to give a little uh, teaser, I'm working on something big which may or may not involve uh, some work on the children of Hurin coming up soon. But um, So we'll get a chance, But uh, but but I want to try to keep that out as much as we can tonight. So... Um, now, having said all of this preamble stuff, let's start actually talking about the story. Um, first, let's go back, as I said, to Morgoth in Hurin and look at the curse of Hurin, um, and, you know, why Morgoth curses Hurin and the nature of the curse, because this is the really important sort of frame, um, that we need to be coming from in order to read the Turin story, and I know that a bunch of people uh, had some thoughts on that. Mike, do you, did you want to start off with sort of uh, talking about the nature of of Melkor's revenge on Hurin? Uh, my comment was simply that the nature of the revenge seems uh, psychological and not physical. I mean, uh, Morgoth is not physically going to torment uh, this character. What he's going to do is force him to see the world through Morgoth's eyes and hear the hear the world through Morgoth's ears and sort of experience the world through, through the way Morgoth experiences the world. And that's less physical and more of an emotional or psychological torment. And I think that's a consistent theme with the, the bad guys, both Morgoth and Sauron, is that they're well beyond physical <laughs> torment. They're more of than that, and this seems consistent with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the the framing of the curse in those terms, Mike, as you point out, I think is really fascinating. Because, um, of course, it's easy to read that. You know, is it, therefore, with my eyes thou shalt see, and with my ears thou shalt hear. Um, it's tempting to read that kind of simply, just to say, you're going to see what I want you to see, and you're going to hear what I want you to hear. Right. I mean, that would be sort of a one simple way to understand what that means to say with my eyes, thou shalt see. Um, But, you know, I'm not even really sure um, that that's all of the meaning that that may well be what Melkor means. Um, 
And that certainly seems to be one of the effects. I'm not trying to say that I think that that's, you know, an inaccurate way to understand it. Um, we see evidence that that's what happens. But yet there's also there's this kind of pathos, this kind of dramatic irony, perhaps. We know, and we've seen many times, that Morgoth himself has a deeply skewed view of the world. Um, that his concept of reality, his understanding of himself, his understanding of his of the relationship between him and creation, his understanding way back in the Ainulindale about his relationship between himself and Iluvatar. Remember the thing that Iluvatar says, the speech that he gives when he, um, you know, when he stops the music and he addresses Melkor. The first thing that he says is basically, "You're deluding yourself," you know, and and you're gonna see eventually. You're gonna see that what you're doing is useless and it's not gonna help, and you're really just fooling yourself. Um, and um, and so I think that there's just as, you know, it, it's this strikes me as a similar kind of irony to the one that we looked at before when we were looking at the, um, you know, the, the name of 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 Angband, um, which which was translated as the Hells of Iron earlier on um, and looking at how, of course, you know, the, it's it's a it's it's a prison and Morgoth is the primary one uh, that he imprisoned. I remember Dave yelled at me for stealing his point when we were talking about that many weeks ago. But um, but I think here again, we can see that same kind of irony that he's condemning. He's cursing Hurin and he's condemning Hurin, but really he's cursing him, him and condemning him to the same fate, which he himself uh, is experiencing through his own choice. Um, which, uh, uh, which I think is really is, 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 is really cool. One of those moments where through this kind of dramatic irony, um, we are invited to kind of see in a sense, even kind of a, over the head of Morgoth himself, and and to sort to to understand, we hear something in Morgoth's own words that uh, uh, that that he himself doesn't doesn't perceive and doesn't understand. Um, but now, notice what does Morgoth get really offended at Hurin for? I mean, it's obviously not just the fact that he's resisting him that he doesn't give in. That's of course a problem, but that seems to be true of many. I mean, we meet Gwyndor, for instance, after he's escaped, and so we can clearly see that there's this still sort of rebellious subculture there in Angband. It's not like he demands that they all, um, you know, I mean, this is not, this is, you know, this is not Big Brother. You know, he doesn't, he, he, he Morgoth is not holding out for all of his captives to love him. Um, so the fact that Hurin is defying him, not such a big deal. But you see, what is the big deal? Where Hur, where Hurin really hits him. Anybody notice this? Um, would it be kind of where he talks about how he's lesser than the other Valar and he's trapped in his form if he wants to still rule the kingdom, kind of? I mean, how and also how he can't hold on to them when they escape death. He kind of has a comeback with that, but yeah, I think we're still referencing Huron here too, by the way. You think what? I think we're still referencing Children of Huron for the beginning. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that. Yeah, I think you were you were quoting from the Children of Huron there a little bit. But yes, yes, we don't get quite so much detail there. Um, but what we are told is that he not only defies him, but he mocks him, um, and that's you know you sort of remember the moment when Feanor slams the door in Morgoth's face when Morgoth comes and tries to and tries to win him over, and I think that. You know, and there, and the the narrator, you know, draws our attention to that in this kind of comical way by saying, you know, and he he shut the door in the face of the mightiest creature in all of Arda, um, sort of pointing out what a what a incredible sort of arrogant thing that was for Feanor to do. But there's not even a sense in which 
Uh, I mean, I, I think there's a sense in which Feanor doesn't even seem to kind of get that. Like, he himself, Feanor himself, is so deluded that he doesn't even really think, d- doesn't even realize what a big deal it is, the thing that he just did. Um, however, uh, here, now, we see Hurin not just defying Morgoth, but mocking him. And Morgoth can't stand that. You know, this is Hurin knowing full well that he is making light of you know, the most powerful creature uh, in Arda um, and taunting him and that Morgoth can't stand and that's what he curses him for and that, I think, helps us to see um, some of the fitness of the particular kind of curse that he puts on 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 Hurin, right? You obviously, Hurin, you you know, you're not even an elf, you little mortal person, right? You obviously do not have a proper respect for me and for what it is to be me and for my power. I'm going to show you, right? I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make it inescapably clear to you. I, you're going to see with my sight. You're going to hear with my hearing. Um, you're, I, I'm, I'm going to give you the experience of what it is really like, and, and then you're going to, you're going to respect me. Um, so, I mean, that I think is, we can see how those two things are connected. Mike, go ahead. Not only does he say to her, and this is what I'm going to do, but in the, the language, it's not that he's lording over him or standing over him or, or, or you know, sort of towering above him. He's standing beside him on this chair, and he's saying, we're going to experience this together, and that's going to be your curse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, 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 and I would also add, just looking at the, Thou hast dared to mock me and to question the power of Melkor, master of the fates of Arda. Master of the fates of Arda. And that, of course, is the setup for our next chapter, which begins of Turin Turambar. And as we will learn later on in the chapter, and you know, in the part of the chapter I told you not to talk about, that Turambar means master of fate, master of doom. Um, so this, again, is what Morgoth is himself explicitly uh, invoking at the beginning, that he, Melkor, is the master of the fates of Arda. Um, and with Turin, we will see, in fact, how that pans out. Um, Let's see. Anyone else want to add anything from our sort of prelude material or uh, or anything before we before we get going into the beginning of Turin's story itself? Uh, were we going to talk about the Baron Luthien connection? Sure, go ahead. Well, uh, just uh, I mean, you talked about how it's interesting how they were uh, born on the same day and like how that I mean how B- Turin was born the same day that Baron saw Luthien. And I'm just going to say it's interesting because uh, they, it's like they must counter each other. I mean, you have like the greatest like love story ever heard and starts the day and then like the most sorrowful story in the Silmarillion starts that day as well um, and then uh, or it could be or I mean him being born on that day could have been like a sign of his greatness I mean from his description I mean he sounds like the strongest like most kick butt Rambo like guy that's out there I mean yeah. he yeah. is great yeah but uh and I'll stop there because I don't want to step on anybody's feet before we continue to go on <laughs> to but yeah you just kind of see uh, see that Yep. No, there is no question that Hurin, that Turin is, and I think you know we have to keep this in mind. I mean, Turin is one of the, is one of the greatest warriors. He is also, and this is something that's easy to forget at various points. We're also told he is the most beautiful. That Turin is the most gorgeous human male that ever lived, um, and that's that's kind of something to keep in mind as we're as we're sort of picturing this. Um, this will be emphasized more again in that second half of the chapter that I told you not to talk about, um, and I'm just like flagrantly breaking my own rule here. 
here multiple times, but um, Turin is certainly great in those senses, just in the sense of capabilities, um, in, in, in the sense of his stature. But I agree, that, that, that connection, the fact that you know, he goes out of his way to point out that just on the exact day, the moment that Baron and Luthien's love begins, that their relationship begins, um, you know, the love between the two of them, which becomes itself sort of the centerpiece of the great story, the person who is the centerpiece of the other great story is coming into being at the same time. Um, and that, I think, actually, you know, even one thing, one small kind of contrast there um, with Baron and Luthien, their story is always about the two of them. Luthien is awesome. She is the most beautiful. She is this. She's a wonderful singer. She always was awesome. She'd been awesome for like centuries before Baron came along. Um, but this wasn't her story. It wasn't a story about her. There were no stories about her before Baron came into the woods. The story there is them, the two of them, their relationship. They're linked together. Um, that's what that story is about. Turin's story is about him. You know, he carries the story in himself. Now, of course, as we see, it's about, you know, Hurin. You know, the, the title of the story is the story of the children of Hurin. So, again, we have, we always have that framework of Hurin and Morgoth and Morgoth's curse upon Hurin. Um, but Turin himself is going to be the real sort of centerpiece. And I think the fact that the two of them, that is Baron and Luthien's relationship, and Turin himself come into the world together is certainly, at the very least, kind of interesting. Um... Did anyone else want to add anything about Baron and Luthien? Okay, so we want to make sure to run off and leave that behind before uh, uh, before I gave everybody a chance to talk about that. Um, okay, let's let's go ahead to the beginning of to the beginning of of Turin's life. Um, thoughts on especially, I think it's interesting the emphasis that's placed at the beginning of the chapter on the women. That is, we get we talk about two pairs of of females, right? Rian and Morwen, his 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 mom and and his aunt. And then we get his two sisters, Lalith and Neonor. And that I think is sort of interesting. And the two of them are not just you know, couples in the sense that we get two of them, um, but they're they're kind of pairings. They, you know, both of them we see two different things. Um, Rian and Morwen are both essentially left widows. Morwen isn't technically a widow because Hurin's alive, um, but both of them are left alone after the near knife. And Lalith and Neonor um, are both victims um, of you know both certainly will become victims of Morgoth's malice. Um, but both of them, they're, you know, certainly with Lalith and Neonor, we have their names going in different directions. Um, Rian and Morwen respond very differently to their situations. Any thoughts about the uh, the women at the beginning? The women and girls? You guys must have gotten all of your ideas down in print here tonight. We have these long notes and now nobody wants to talk. Matt, you made an interesting observation about Neonor's name, um, which I certainly agree with you is almost certainly not a coincidence. Did you want to say something about that? Um, not especially, but yeah, I did notice <laughs> that right away as well. Could you go ahead and say what it was? I want to give you credit here for your observation. Well, th- it's just Neanna and Neanor, they uh, have the same beginning. Yeah, yeah, and both of them, cause both of them are associated with weeping, right? Um, Neanor, clearly here being the opposite of 
the life. And I think that it's, you know, that the, to me, the fascinating thing is the fact that these, that their names, that the, the names of the two sisters of Turin um, appear to be almost allegorical names, right? Um, you know, you've got laughter and grief, both of them. Those are his two sisters, um, you know, which seem to be sort of the different phases of his life. Um and uh, as it, it just doesn't seem just to invite an allegorical reading. It seems to be an allegorical, I mean, just explicitly allegorical, which, again, I find I find kind of fascinating. Dave, what are your thoughts? You, you just stole my point again. Thief <laughs> <laughs> <Keith> Olsen! <laughs> and it's not actually my point. I was just, somebody had pointed this that exact thing out in the chat room um, by the username of Earl Lindor, and so I was volunteering their point. Uh, but they had just pointed out that it was very interesting that, that the first sister's name means laughter and the second sister's name means um, uh, mourning. <clears throat> so um, I don't really have coherent thoughts about it because it wasn't my independent thought, but that is uh, very interesting. Um, uh, although it's what's also interesting is that the, 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 the sister... Who's what is it? It's uh, La Laith. Mm-hmm. Her life's pretty short-lived, uh, and so I guess uh, in the same, in much the same way, Turin's sort of happy period of his life uh, doesn't last too long either, does it? Yeah, yeah. That that whole laughter thing doesn't really get off the ground. Um, no, no, it doesn't. Um, but you know, see, the thing here that I think, you know, I know that uh, to some extent, Tolkien readers have been sort of trained to resist allegory you know <laughs> it must not be allegory tolkien doesn't do allegory um but i think here the interesting thing about this is not the idea that tolkien is doing allegory but the fact that hurin was doing allegory that is hurin and morwen named their daughters names that they knew full well meant these things <laughs> they chose to name their first daughter laughter and you can see this is associated, you don't even have to read the Children of Hurin to see that this is associated with a very happy time in their lives, and not just their lives, but in the lives of the whole kingdom. Um, this is when the, when, when, when spirits are high, when, um, when, when people are respond, you know, the, the, the word has gone out about the, the success, the success of Baron and Luthien, and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mithros is starting to have his optimistic plans about, you know, getting together a union of of attacking and you know and Hurin has taken over and he he is young and he, uh I think of that line about Aemir in the battle of the Pelennor fields he is young and he is king and the lord of a fell people and um you know and hey everything looks great so hey we're we have we have a daughter let's name her laughter and then of course unsurprisingly Morwen who is now again for all intents and purposes a widow names her second daughter, which, remember, is born after the battle. So, I mean, she is pregnant uh, with Neonor when, uh, um, when, when Hurin goes away. Um, at this point, she names her daughter Neonor, mourning. Um, and uh, so, again, this is, not, this is not like Tolkien doing allegory. This is like Morwen doing allegory here, that she sees her two daughters as themselves like telling the story of her family. Um, you know, that the children of Hurin here are co- consciously representing. And Lalife died young, just as the happiness of their family and their kingdom died young. Um, and all of the men go off with a hundred 
percent mortality rate in the near Nyatharnodiad. So, um, so yeah, that I think is uh, is is clearly a uh, that that's what's to me so interesting is that we can see the characters themselves thinking in these allegorical ways. Nick. Okay, I'm piecing this together on the spot, so bear with me. I was going to comment a little ahead of time, a little further from now, about the whole free will, predestined thing, with um, where I think the life of Turin is really a struggle between the two. There was a, a, a curse placed by Morgoth, and you can kind of see that because there's so many absurd, absurdly bad situations that Turin is faced with. But on the other hand, he has a lot of decisions that he makes poorly. Yeah. Um, either out of anger, he, he has quite a temper, or out of out of pride. Um, the death of Cyrus. Yeah, Cyrus. Yeah. Cyrus. That was out of anger. Um, the slaying of uh, Beleg was out of anger. The fall of Nargothorn was partly due to his pride. Um, and I think it's really symbolic of, of the two his two sisters' names. Laughter, who was killed early on. Um, from a pestilence from Angban, so that could have been like the initiation of the curse, killing, you know, kind of symbolic killing laughter, and that, that seemed like a good part of, of Turin's life in the beginning. And then his father was away, his, his daughter, uh, his, his sister died, and then he was sent to live with the elves, so his, his family was kind of broken apart, and this kind of, um, with the psychodynamics, kind of brought out a lot of anger in him, and then that just threw the whole thing into kind of a whirlwind. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, and I think this is definitely one of the big issues with the story of Turin Turambar is to be able to see almost everything that happens, you can look at from more than one side, right? I mean, you look at every sort of major turning point in Turin's story, and you can see what are what are his thoughts, what's his role, what 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 decisions is he making in this process, and then, but at the same time, there's still things beyond his control, right? You know, what does he, um, what is he suffering? You know, what is, what is, what is going on that is not his responsibility? You know, that is not, um, that, that he doesn't have any control over. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that, that's, that's certainly something that we can come back to. I actually want to look at that at a bunch of different places. Um, and let's start actually with something which first one decision which is going to have enormous consequences in Turin's life which is not even his own decision and that's Morwen's decision his mom's decision not to come with him into Doriath had the whole family just removed down to Doriath together well things would have been all right right um at least one can imagine that things might have been okay under the circumstances. There's a lot of evidence to suggest things still would have gone wrong, but, uh, um, but nevertheless, that certainly seems to be a big deal. Now, why, why does she do that? Why doesn't she, why doesn't she go? What do we see in the, do, do you guys blame Morwen? Yeah, Joe, go ahead. Um, I was going to say, I mean, it's like you can and can't, I mean, I hate to like split the road like that, but I mean, I mean, that was, the place she was with her husband for that longest time, and but I'm leaning more. I kind of do blame her. I mean, she had her children to take care of. I mean, she missed her husband. She felt like she was committed to that place. But I mean, I mean, you got one kid, you got another one on the way. <laughs> I mean, and you can go to Doriath. It's like the safest place ever, right there. I mean, come on, it's almost like a no-brainer. But I mean, that's just. I mean, it's part of her character, and I mean, part of her wanting to be committed and not really give in, I guess. But uh, I would lean more towards. I, she probably made a mistake, but 
you can point fingers everywhere in the story. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, you can see that she's doing the right thing by the house of Hurin in preserving the air of the house, right? That is, she sends Turin off to be where he's safe, um, but uh, um, where she's going to remain steadfast, right? She's going to stay there. You can see both sides. Chris, go ahead. I, I guess one thing I read into it, that uh, she hasn't given up hope for Hurin, um, even though it's... Uh, Probably doesn't necessarily make logical sense, but I think maybe she had some hope that. Uh, I guess I'm in, I can't remember. Does she know at this point that he might still be alive and being cursed by Melkor? I, but uh, I, I still think that uh, she has some hope for her. Own. Yeah, that's something. That's, yeah, that's something that's not entirely clear. Um, Rian seems to know perfectly well um, that. Uh, her husband, Huor, is dead. Um, and she goes to the Haldenindengen, that is the, the hill of the slain, and she la- lays herself down on it and she dies. Um, so Rian ob- seems to know what happened. And it's obvious that Turin has heard something and has some kind of suspicion, because as soon as he hears from Gwyndor that Gwyndor is from... that, that he's escaped from from Angban, you know, that he was on the inside, um, he asks him, hey, have you heard anything about Hurin? Um, and he doesn't seem to be asking, you know, is he alive or dead? He says, have you seen him? Um, so there does seem to be some knowledge that has gotten around that Hurin is still alive or might be still alive. So yeah, I, I mean, I think that we, it, it does seem fair um, to suppose that her wanting to, to to wait for Hurin. Not just, oh, this is the house where we live together and I'm being sentimental, but I'm going to stay and wait for him no matter what the consequences and no matter what's going on around me um, seems to be more involved. Dave? You there, Dave? So I don't really have any speculation about why, but I just wanted to point out that this is uh, a recurring motif. Um, I feel like this is a a common motif in in a lot of fantasy and maybe even historical sort of um, stuff as well. Uh, but in the Silmarillion in particular, uh, Gil-galad was sort of sent away to a safe place um, by uh, uh, well, whoever it was that it was father or was whether it's Fingen or whether it's it um, Oradreth. Yes. Uh, and we sort of see this that the kind of the heirs are sent away to a safe place while other while they're they're um, um, uh, fathers or mothers or whoever it might be kind of hold down the fort or man the front lines. Um, I, I don't know what Morwen's specific reasons might be, but I'm just pointing out that this is not not actually all that unusual. Right. Other so, than the fact that maybe because she's a woman. Right. Certainly. Um, yeah. And, and, and that that's kind of the thing. I mean, there is almost this sense in which Morwen is not just like, I'm going to stay in the home and wait for Hurin to come back, um, but that she is sort of stay, you know, I, and more like the model that you just described. She's going to stay and hold down the fort uh, on the front lines in Hithlum as, as sort of, in a sense, the representative um, of the House of Hador. Um, there, even though she's not by blood of the House of Hador, she's uh, she is uh, related to Baron by blood. But um, but anyway, she's going to be going to stay there as the representative of the House of Hador um, in the kingdom while she waits. You know, almost almost like she's. 
there's there's almost this sense as if she's appointed herself some kind of like unofficial regent or something though of course she doesn't actually rule the land the easterlings have run have have overrun it um but but yeah it it does have almost not not only sentimental but almost this sort of more political implications and that's as you say standard that even seems to be um admirable uh but certainly it has unfortunate consequences. Um, and that's where I think we can see, and if we want to look for places where we can say, all right, can we put our finger on where the curse of Morgoth is working here? And I think one of the things that we see is that where things which are not really bad things in themselves just kind of don't work out, you know, where 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 one wants to say something like what I just said, like, well, it's just, it's kind of unfortunate the way it works out. Um, that seems kind of to me the place where we could point to and say that perhaps is the will of the will of of Morgoth at work here perverting and twisting um the things which are the things which are good or which are which um which could be good uh in themselves and turning it around um Let's look at one of Turin's first, really the first kind of decision moment for Turin, where we see him acting independently. Um, and, and here I'm thinking of the Cyros incident, um, the uh, the incident when he throws the cup at Cyrus's face and uh, breaks his face and then uh, has a fight with him in the woods the next day. Um, what do we see? Now, Cyros is certainly very interesting. Matt, you were pointing out in the... Um, in our class notes about how, uh, how interesting Cyrus is. Matt, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Just, uh, I'd like to say that, um, at this point we've seen, uh, many examples of, uh, elves behaving badly, but, um, Cyrus, this struck me, um, I hate to bring this up, but free from reading the children from here and because it's much more, um, uh, explained in much more detail, but he seems to be, um, rather than, you know, this great, Oh, lost you there. Sorry about his uh, mistreatment and harshness towards uh, Turin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he does. He does definitely behave badly. So I sort of lost you in the middle of that of, of that comment there. Could you go back like one sentence from where you ended up? Yeah, I was just saying that that Cyrus. Um, he just he didn't seem to have as much motivation to to, to uh, be such a jerk. Basically, uh, he just seemed to be a petty bully. Yeah, I mean, what well, the motivation that we're we're given is essentially envy. You know that he is he is jealous of 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 Turin, and in a sense, you can see, you know, Cyrus, the um, the 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 bad Sindar here at Thingol's court, is almost like a, like a distillation of the worst impulses that Thingol himself had. I mean, you think of Thingol's reactions when Baron comes into the court. Um, now, obviously, there are some different factors there. You know, you've got the whole, like, his daughter thing and everything going on. But nevertheless, the kind of disdain um, in which he obviously holds Baron as a mortal uh, man, we see. I mean, it's the implication is that Cyrus is uh, is that Cyrus is is kind of thinking in that way too. And again, I, even if we stick just to the very brief account that we get of this um, in the Silmarillion. Um, Again, don't want to discourage the reading of the children of Hurin, but again, even even just looking here, we can see we can see what is emphasized. Um, this is on page one ninety nine. Um, and when three years had passed, Turin returned again to Menegroth, but he came from the wild and was unkempt, and his gear and garments were wayworn. 
Now one there was in Doriath of the people of the Nandor, high in the councils of the king. Cyrus was his name. He had long begrudged to Turin the honor he received as Thingol's foster-son, and seated opposite to him at the board, he taunted him, saying, If the men of Hitlam are so wild and fell, of what sort are the women of that land? Do they run like deer, clad only in their hair? Then Turin, in great anger, took up a drinking vessel and cast it at Cyrus, and he was grievously hurt. Um, now, what can we see, just, just in that one paragraph, what can we see Cyrus emphasizing? Oh, and I should say I've maligned the Sindar. He, he is, of course, a Nandor, not a Sindar, even though he's in Thingol's court. Um, which, of course, by itself is a little brief reminder of the fact that uh, a little brief reminder of the fact that Thingol is hold, holds himself. Re, remember the overking of all of the elves of of Middle Earth. Um, what do we see here? What what we can see two things. What offends Cyrus in truth? and what he takes occasion to point to. Yeah, Jason? Well, it seems like he goes straight to criticizing the women of the region, and of course, Turin at this point is probably missing his mother and the sister that he's never seen, and so he's he's sort of, um, on the basis of Turin's appearance, he's trying to cast aspersions on, you know, huge numbers of people, Turin's people as a whole, uh, in essence, and, I mean, we could easily see how that would... Um, given what we know of Turin's personality, uh, rub him the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly is a wildly insensitive thing to say. I mean, especially uh, even leaving aside Morwen and Neon, or even just thinking of his poor dead sister. Um, you know, uh, the things that he's going to be thinking about. Um, and how, yeah, how completely inappropriate uh, this is. And as you say, uh, somebody, even somebody a little bit less... Uh, intemperate than Turin would have been upset. Um, yeah, Matt, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm just—I'm sorry to jump ahead in the story here, but it just strikes me that this is foreshadowing because he will find his sister later on clad only in her hair. Yes, 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 who was running naked through the woods like a deer. Yes, exactly. Um, and this is uh, one of the reasons that I think it's... Uh, it's worthwhile um, just focusing on the Silmarillion story. That is, rather than, than merely replacing it with the Children of Hurin version. Again, it's kind of tempting. I mean, if you're reading through the Silmarillion to get to this chapter and say, well, hey, instead of reading this chapter, let's put this down, read the Children of Hurin, and then I'm going to come back and you know turn to the next chapter. There's something that you do get um, from this perspective. There's something that you do get from... There, there is some things that are gained, actually, by doing the shorter version and by kind of seeing it from this height. And I think that's one of those things. You can see some of these connections because this, this story and um, the and and its relation to others are 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 pretty well crafted, and we can see some of those relationships. Yeah, there's this really painful irony, this this really painful foreshadowing um, of when he in fact will meet one of the women of Hithlam exactly like that and it won't be a disgrace and it won't be um it won't be an insult um but now notice here the thing that he that notice the difference between what he's actually offended by which is the honor that you know he begrudges to tour in the honor he received as Thingol's foster son Thingol is showing him great honor is has elevated him above all the rest of the elves including you know his trusted counselors like Cyrus but what he criticizes him for is not that. 
Um, but he takes what seems to be this petty, this petty thing. But I think we can see something about his perspective there. Yeah, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, I had raised my hand before you made that last comment, but I was essentially going to say something very similar that it doesn't seem to to be any direct connection between the the grudge that he has against Turin and the comment that he makes when you would think that he would be looking for a reason to criticize uh, Turin himself, and you think he'd find some angle to say, yeah, hey, Turin, you suck, but instead it's this kind of oblique, oh, you, come from a, you must come from a crazy people, and going after the whole group rather than you know, Turin himself. So it didn't seem that it made much sense, even if you, know, if you were trying to come up with a good insult for the guy to try to make others have a lower estimation of him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I don't know why that is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he doesn't, he's not scheming against Turin, you know, he's not trying to poison Fingal's mind against him, oh, look, he's unwise, and oh, look, he's, um, you know, he's rash and foolish, and you can't trust him. It, you know, from what we see of him later on, I, I, I'm kind of thinking you might be able to build a case with that if you look around carefully enough, um, but that's not where Cyrus goes. Where Cyrus goes is essentially his like he's low class. What he's criticizing him for is his dress. Like he's come shabbily dressed to the feast. Um, you know, he didn't comb his hair before he left home. That's literally what unkempt means. Um, and Turin, by the way, we we are to understand has fabulous hair. Um, but anyway, Turin's fabulous hair is all must, and he's still dirty and wayworn um, from his travel, and. That's what he focuses on. Like, oh, you are so, you are so déclassé. You are so, you're such an eyesore. Um, you're such a peasant here. Um, and that's that's the criticism that he makes. And as you say, you know, Jason, he goes beyond, of course, just just criticizing him and generalizes it to his whole people. But that seems to be, in his mind, not just a cruel but funny joke, um, but also a, a way to try even more systematically to undermine Turin. Ah, uh, Turin is showing his roots. I mean, again, re- remember the phrase that that Thingol threw at Baron, base-born mortal, right? Um, that seems to be the kind of accusation that Cyrus... But look, I mean, look at this savage... Look at this primitive, like, you know, the the people of Hithlam obviously are up there, like, banging rocks together or something. You know, you just can't trust these people. Um, and, um, and, and so, I mean, I, that seems to be sort of his his approach. Mike, what were you thinking about, Mike? Same point. What Soros <laughs> wants to say to Thingol is, uh, you've made a mistake by honoring this uh, mortal man. Mortal men are more like animals they're more beastly than we elves are and that's a mistake sir yeah and he can't say that and what we get is this outburst about his appearance yeah yeah um and 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 therefore the connection to the women i think pointing to even sort of the deeper roots of this in human culture right this is not just like oh you know because you know certainly disheveled and unkempt can be you know Macho in a war, you know, he's been he's he is a rugged warrior. He's out on the frontiers, you know. He's coming back. Say, no, no. Even the women of him are probably like this, you know. They probably run around naked and you know whatever. Um, Jack, go ahead. Yeah, I think this uh, this chapter or this paragraph also very quickly tells us, you know, who Turin is. Uh, reveals his character. Uh, it just takes that one, you know, throw of the the goblet or whatever, and you realize that Turin doesn't have a sense of humor. He takes himself way too seriously. He doesn't laugh it off, or he doesn't show wit. 
um, it, it's personal. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. There's certainly there are some uh, there are some Tolkien characters who might have responded with wit or at least with verbal outrage. Right, um, Turin responds <laughs> with a goblet to the face. Um, no commentary. Um, and you're right, that does show us something about Turin. And there will be other occasions, I think, on which we can see Turin taking the kind of goblet to the face approach. And that's that's um, that's where I. You look at where he goes right after this. So the next day, he ends up he ends up killing Cyrus. Well, sort of. Cyrus's comeuppance seems perfectly just, but again, notice this is another place where we see something about about Turin. Cyrus ambushes him, right? I mean, we're told again. It's uh, although we're we're given the story, we're given so much more about the story in the Children of Hurin. All we're told, like in one in half a sentence, on the on the next day, Cyrus waylaid Turin as he set out from Menegroth to return to the marshes. So Cyrus ambushes him and tries to kill him. So Turin, in self-defense beats him anyway, even though Cyrus comes at him from hiding. Okay, okay, fine. So he's already beat him. So what does he do? Does he kill him? You know, does he, he could kill him, perfectly justified, self-defense, everything else, even prior to the insult of the next day. But instead, Turin overcame him and set him to run naked as a hunted beast through the woods. Then Cyrus, fleeing in terror before him, fell into the chasm of a stream, and his body was broken on a great rock in the water. Um... So he tries to punish him non-lethally to give him this poetic punishment. Um, in other words, to and you you can see that the 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 direction that this points that is the the, the what he seems to be trying to say to Cyrus here in giving this punishment. Dave, so I'm wondering if we're supposed to start thinking about the curse here because you're right. It's kind of interesting. It, um, so obviously. Maybe on the one hand, this is a um, uh, it is a non-lethal way to try to punish um, Cyros, but on the other hand, it seems a little over the top, you might say, um, for him to do that. But at the same time, it seems like a freak accident that this guy would fall into a chasm and die. And I'm wondering if this is where we start to see the subtle interplay between Turin's um, uh, poor choices and and then. The, the looming sort of curse and fate um, in things that happened to him, you know, where we we see this interplay where where it, neither one of them has primacy. Uh, you know, obviously he put himself in this situation by maybe making a, a poor choice, making this guy run through the woods naked in terror for his life. But then at the same time, it could be if anybody else had done it, they wouldn't have had the freak accident of him falling into the chasm. So mm-hmm. are, I'm wondering, are we supposed to think of be, be thinking about curse right now? Well, I mean, I think so, especially since not only did he happen to accidentally fall into a chasm, he happened to accidentally fall into a chasm in front of witnesses, right? It turns out that Moblong and his hunting party are right there. Um and see it happen, and it looks awfully bad. You know, I mean, he's just, there. What they would have seen, of course, is Turin chasing Cyrus, who's been stripped naked, and Turin chasing Cyrus off a cliff to his death. It looks bad. I mean, it looks bad, right? Now, Turin's response here seems to be the even seems to be an even bigger deal and to have bigger consequences in some ways. Um, I mean, I think everybody and eventually everybody does agree that Cyrus really had it coming to him. Um, 
both the goblet to the face uh, and arguably even the rock at the bottom of the chasm um, because of his attempt to to murder Turin from hiding um, on the next day. However, what happens after the death? Um, What happens when Moblung essentially seems to try to arrest him um, is, I think, a I think a much bigger deal. Joe? I was going to say, well, you, you see Turin choosing to leave Doriath, and uh, I think um, some of his driving motives behind that would basically just be like pride and then also some worry. I mean, he didn't consider himself to be guilty of anything at all, really. I mean, but um, he realized that, you know, the witnesses, was he th- the ones that was he think would just say, hey, I mean, he was chasing him through the woods, and he made him fall into a river. Uh, so, I mean, he didn't want to, and I think that kind of plays back to him really wanting to see his mother and sister again. I mean, if he's going to be punished in a way, I mean, he doesn't know if he'll be punished or he might ever, never get to see him again. So, um, and I think it kind of sort fits, fits into his plan anyway, because, I mean, he was wanting to go out and, like, do more open battle and stuff like that anyway. So it kind of fits in that, but not really. Yeah, I mean, possibly. But see, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the thing, one thing to keep in mind here is that he is... His actions could be construed pretty easily as basically an insult to Thingol. Um, you know, that he thinks he thinks he's being wrongfully accused and obviously suspects he's going to be wrongly convicted if he goes back to trial. So he refuses even to stand trial. Elizabeth? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point for Turin. Um, it's the point at which he gives himself his first new name, the wronged. Yes. And I, I think that's a really interesting lens at which he's viewing all of these actions. Um, because essentially, you know, he's been raised and nurtured since childhood and loved, really, by Thingol at Doreth. And he has absolutely no reason to think that they're not going to believe him and not going to, you know, give him the pardon that um, Madblanc seems to think that they're going to do. And um, also, it seems to me that by refusing to go back, he's essentially refusing to take accountability for what he has done and to just kind of let that process of uh, being accountable and, um, you know, explaining what's happened and just, you know, taking the responsibility. He's not letting that play out. And to me, you know, seeing himself as wronged when really the only wrong was this one isolated incident with this one kind of jerk elf, it's really the only thing in his whole history of time at Doreth that's happened to him. It's a it's a really odd lens, and I don't know if that's because of the curse of um, of uh, Morgoth, but I tend to think that it's more of a poor strength of character on Turin's part that we see, you know, over and over again, um, you know, on Turin's on Turin's end. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, this is where we can see, as you say, the other side of that, because it is, we can say, I mean, I think that Dave is right to suggest, you know, Cyrus happening to fall off a cliff to his death in front of witnesses, perhaps we can see the hand of Morgoth's curse there, placing Turin in this really unfortunate situation. But it becomes a really unfortunate situation because of how he responds to it. Um, And... Um, and 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 Elizabeth, you're absolutely right to emphasize the name Turin does set the record. Uh, by the end of his career, he will set the record for the total number of names uh, that any one character in the Silmarillion <laughs> has. Um, and certainly, those moments when he 
is either given or gives himself another name um, is important, and I think we and we really need to pay attention to those. And I think that Elizabeth is exactly right. The name that he gives himself here really emphasizes something about him and his outlook. To call himself the wronged, had he been convicted wrongfully, then he could call himself that. But he didn't even stand trial. Um, you know, so he like yeah, it looks bad. He's got to admit, he's got to re- recognize it looks bad. He's not been wronged, and you're and 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 you're absolutely right. He's been given nothing but favor, so much favor that Cyrus was really envious of him. Um, he has been treated very very well, and has no reason to now identify him. Now I'm going to change my name to the one who has been wronged, as if he'd been wronged all his life. He certainly hasn't been by Thingol. Um, not that, of course, he has had universally a real happy life so far, um, even even up to this point. But I think it's still, um, you're right to say, we can see in him, I think, something, um, a warped perspective on himself and on his own circumstances by the way in which he chooses to identify himself here. Yeah, Jason? Yeah, tying into that, this whole idea of you know whether he's paranoid or not, I'm, I was thinking that... I was sort of thinking out loud here that of, of all the characters in Tolkien, I mean, Turin seems like one of the ones who is, is most unwilling to, you know, a- accept any kind of constraints on himself. He, he, he's obviously not a team player. He wants to define the terms of his own existence. So he runs out, you know, he goes out into the wild on his own. And even when he's got a pretty good situation there, obviously, had with all this favor from Thingol, at, at the first instance like this, he... You know, runs away and, and takes up with these obviously pretty rough customers, uh, you know, and Liz is an outlaw and all that sort of thing. And it seems like I'm almost getting the sense that he's sort of like some sort of um, would-be Nietzschean Superman who just wants to define the terms of you know, everything around him, not so much as a, a Morgoth kind of figure who wants to dominate everybody, but just can't accept any sort of external constraints on himself. And I don't know if... if um, others see the same kind of tendencies in him but, but as I said I'm just thinking out loud here yeah no I, I I I definitely agree but before I go on to agree with you at any length I want to call on Dave because I don't want to get in trouble again go ahead Dave uh, I just want to provide some um, pushback uh, which which uh, is unusual for me in this circumstance because I, I generally am in the camp of Turin's kind of a jerk uh, although I really like J- Jason I like I love your into a Nietzschean Superman. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, um, but uh, the little bit of pushback I want to provide is just, and, and and I'm anticipating later things that happen. Agree that his his is pretty bad. Like the idea that he's like you know that he refuses to even go back and find out you know what what the reaction will be. He doesn't trust that. Thingol will be fair or, or merciful, which is ridiculous given how well Turin's tre- or how well Thingol's treated him. Um, uh, and, and we all sort of point and say, like, well, look at all the bad things that come of, look at all the consequences of his decision that arise from from his decision here. But I, but the the one thing that I want to keep pointing out is that it's that the the consequences, the later negative consequences that arise out of this decision and other decisions that he makes. 
are, it's not. It's very difficult to, to point, sit there, and, and and to be able to to directly to show a line of cause and effect from his decision to the bad consequences. I mean, he puts himself in these situations. He obviously makes bad decisions, and and he even makes evil decisions sometimes. But the things that come out of it, the consequences that arise from it, sometimes are just way out of proportion, and just there's no way to there's no way to say like it's ridiculous to, to suggest that. You know, like, well, he got what he deserved, and th you know, this is a direct consequence of that decision. I mean, some of the consequences are are not direct consequences of decision. They're they're, I mean, they're maybe loosely connected, or they're sort of well, if he hadn't made that decision, he would have never been in this situation. But like, the, you know, there's obviously something else, inter you know, affecting him or making an impact on events around him, whether we want to call it ch um, chance. Or we want to call it fate, or we want to call it Morgoth's curse. Um, some of the things that, some of the consequences that that arise from his decisions um, uh, are not not direct consequences of his decisions. They're they're they're. It's a little far fetched to, to suggest that. I think. Well, I think that's true, and I, I, do, I don't necessarily. I wouldn't say. I mean, and again, that's what I think is so fascinating about this story. Um, if we could look at it and say, "Oh, this is clearly, you know, this is just this poor guy is just kind of going through his life, minding his own business, and and doing the best that he can," and Morgoth just keeps pounding on him, and situations behind beyond his control are 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 just beating on him. Um, well, that that would be a much less interesting story, or the other way around. You know, if the whole time we're just like this guy is just a complete jerk um, and can't do anything right, and everything he does is really stupid, and he deserves everything he gets. Um, th that also would be a much less interesting story, and Turin's story is very much neither one of those things. Um, and I think that I know I, I know my experience as I'm reading it is is that I tend to kind of go back and forth from one thing to another. Um, you know, at that moment when when Cyrus is lying dead at the bottom of the gorge, it's easy to think like, oh man, you know, he like okay, it was a little over the top maybe to strip him naked and make him run through the woods, but the guy just tried to murder him. Like, you know, like okay, this is you know that was seriously unfortunate. But then right right afterwards, his you know he 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 begins to do one of the things which I think is sort of most indefensible. And here I want to agree with uh, the. The listener um, from my Middle Earth, Dave, that you uh, transcribed the the question in our notes here uh, from uh, from Fang on my Middle Earth, um, with and I, I I agree this is a really big issue, and I'll just sort of read uh, some of the things that he says here um, about his specifically about his joining the band of outlaws. Um, what would possess Turin to start killing elves and men as well as orcs? Maybe he was so distraught over Cyrus's death and his own belief that he was an outlaw that he turned to whatever company he would find. And because that company was a bunch of outlaws, he just did what they did. But that doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, Turin isn't exactly the most emotionally balanced person, so maybe it really comes down to his childhood and general family background of fighting and death against evil forces. Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, it's easy to say he's a pretty disturbed individual, but but no, I mean, I agree that there's there's there is something really bad um, that he is doing there. His response to this situation 
is horrible. Not just I'm going to go off and I'm going to call myself the wronged. Um, it's not just I'm going to I'm going to think about myself this way and I'm going to think about the world this way. But he follows that up with his actions. He doesn't just join a band of outlaws. He becomes the captain of the band of outlaws. And while he is the captain of the band of outlaws, they are still ambushing and stealing, and it seems at times killing humans and elves as well as orcs. Um, and we see, you know, he doesn't have his own moment, Turin doesn't have his own moment of personal conviction. He's not really stricken in his conscience about the life he is living with the outlaws until the day he returns home and finds that they have uh, captured and have been tormenting his best friend. Um, And to me, the implication of that moment is that he is not shocked to come home and find that they have captured an elf and tied him up and are doing goodness knows what to him. Um, That's not what shocks him. What shocks him is, oh, ooh, wow, that's Baron, my friend, that they're doing this to. And in that moment, he recognizes what a horrible thing he's been doing and and swears it off and promises that he's not going to do that anymore. Um, Now, again, even in there... Even in that response, we do see this one moment, um, and I would say it's one of the few moments in Turin's story where we see him having this kind of conversion moment, where we see him saying, I'm going to straighten myself up and turn myself around. Um, Turin uh, seems to, uh, through most of the rest of his story, uh, seems to have the kind of career pattern of going really hard in one direction despite what anybody says to him until he hits a wall um, and is sort of compelled to go in a different direction or to do something else. Um, But this is a moment where he does turn and says, okay, you know, my bad, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm going to stop and go in a different direction. But again, I just come back... Um, I mean, I would connect uh, uh, Fang's point here with Elizabeth's point earlier. To me, his time with the outlaws is merely his outward, exp- his acting out of the name that he gives himself. Um, it, it's like since I was wronged, you know, since my whole identity is like the dude who was done wrong, then I, it's perfectly fine for me to, to I, you know, if you're going to say I'm an outlaw, I might as well be an outlaw. Um, since Everybody has turned against me, and I am wronged. I'm going to turn against everybody else, and that's kind of justified. Um, and, you know, actually, when you think about that, in a sense, that gives... It's it's kind of ominous to think back on the whole stripping Cyrus naked and making him run through the woods thing, right? That I'm going to turn the tables on him, right? He, he, he did this to me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this back to him. Um, well, it seems... I mean, Saros is such a jerk that it's it's hard to object too strongly to that. But um, here, when we see that done in a much more thorough way, in a much darker way, um, hey, I'm wronged, so I'm going to wrong other people, and I don't care um, because they don't care about me, um, it, it seems... It seems a lot more serious. Um, but but let's bring Beleg into this conversation. I've already referred to him, and uh, uh, I think there's a lot that we could say about Beleg. Um, Beleg, one of my favorite characters from the whole Silmarillion. Big fan of Beleg. Um, what do you guys think? And and here I think we can kind of uh, um, we can kind of bring together uh, Beleg's Beleg's two visits. Um, to Turin, he comes first to convey uh, to convey to Turin. He finds Turin first to convey Thingol's pardon and tell him, "Hey, it's fine. You can come back." Um, and then he comes back again to stay with him the second time. Um, so I'd be happy to talk about both of those things. Brandon, 
Yeah, it's just it's it's very interesting to kind of again see the motif of um, an elf kind of um, giving a hand to a man and believing in sort of this. I wonder if it has anything to do with um, Baron, the line of Baron and the story of Baron and Luthien, but. I think now in the elves' kind of new sphere, in their minds, in this, in their consciousness, is this idea of the mixture of races between elf and men, and I think that becomes really important. And uh, it seems that Beleg is kind of given a opportunity here to Torin. Uh, yeah. He's the best in him. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, there you can establish you can establish some parallels. Um, that is, he is, there is a kind of, uh, it's awkward to use this word because when modern people use this word, it's always a terrible insult, but I don't mean it insultingly. There's a kind of condescension that Belig is showing to Turin, a good kind of condescension. He is, in a sense, above him. Turin is immortal and, and Belig is, is an, and it's even just like the age difference. Belig has been one of the great you know, warrior captains of, of Doriath uh, for centuries. Uh, and, and then here's Turin, who's not only mortal, but a kid. He's like a teenager uh, growing up in Thingol's court. Um, and Belig has taken him under his wing, and he now clearly, clearly sees him as an equal, clearly loves him like a brother, um, and not just like, you know, as an uncle or a grandfather or something like that. Um, there is a way in which Belig is really sort of coming down to Turin and really elevating Turin. Um, and and I, I think that that is something, um, the the kind of devotion, the kind of self-sacrifice that Belig shows. I mean, there is, um, there are there are ways in which you can actually look at some parallels between Baron and Luthien's relationship and Turin and Belig's relationship. And I, and I don't mean this in, in, in the romantic sense, but that, um, you know, you think of the moment when Baron is saying to Luthien, both saying to her and then afterwards sneaking away and singing to the breeze, you know, that he's going to leave her behind and that he wants, you know, he, he, he can't possibly bring, bring her with him, but she insists and she says, I'm going to share your destiny. Well, we see Beleg doing the same thing, that he's going to leave his home and he's not going to stay and be, you know, continue to be one of the uh, you know, the great revered people in Doriath, he's going to leave and he's going to take up the life of an outlaw and he's going to live uh, and, and, and he's going to join his fate to to Turin's again, not in the larger sense that Luthien joins her fate to Baron's, um, that is her ultimate destiny. But, but, but Beleg, um, Beleg is going to sort of step out of his life and step out of his position um, and, and, and join Turin just, for love, and that's uh, that's pretty remarkable, Jack. Yeah, I find Belig uh, very interesting as a character, and, and so much as how he reflects or tells us something about Turin. Um, we've been down on Turin, and we will continue to be down on Turin. But we love Belig, yeah, and we think he's wonderful and wise and all that. But Belig loves Turin, so what's that telling us about Turin? There must be something there that um, he's seeing that we're not seeing. Um, or because I don't think Belloc's just um, I don't think he's an idiot you know he's been around a while right and I don't I don't think he necessarily has this same love for everybody because um, you know he shows a lot of favoritism towards Turin and and, and really uh, um, devotes a lot of time to him yeah so what are we so what does he see that we don't 
Yep. No, and that is it is certainly true. I mean, it's 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 good to remember that. And Beleg certainly should be a reminder. This is not just you know, Beleg is not just taking in a stray puppy, right? I mean, this is not just him being kind to a complete loser. Um Turin is not only great by lineage, remember he's closely related to Baron, um and he's and he's the heir of the house of Hador. You know, he's 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 no, you know, like scruffy urchin off the street but at the same time not only does he have that position and does he have that lineage he himself has like fantastic potential you know i mean he is one of the great among the children of iluvatar um and you know he's one of the ones that it's, it's sort of easiest to say you know if everything had worked out had he been um had he been raised in a different environment, had he been born at a different point in history, um, he could have been one of the greatest leaders of the human race in all of Tolkien's stories. Um, he I mean, Certainly he has that potential. But again, I mean, it's in that sense, it's almost like Feanor, right? I mean, what could Feanor have been? Don't forget that scene um, when Manway is weeping over the marring of Feanor, right? And sort of just the wreck that, you know, what Feanor could have been and what he could have done um, and the, you know, the mighty things he could have accomplished um, and that, that aren't going to happen now. And you can see, it's like with Beleg, you can see him being like, well, I don't want to give up on him. You know, I, I, I'm not going to just let him go. Um, I want to try to help him. I'm going to step out and sacrifice myself um, to see if there's a chance that I could help to turn him around. Um, even after Turin has twice made his own choice. He made his choice to leave Doriath, and then he makes the choice to refuse to come back, for which there seems to be almost no excuse. Um, and yet, Belig says, I'm not just going to let him go. I'm not just going to give up. Um, because he ha- because there is too much for him there is too much about him um there is too much uh too much good in him uh just to let him go so jack that's a really important reminder matt you there matt uh-oh <laughs> people in our text chat are joking about little huan because uh, uh uh chris's other microphone got chewed by his little dog which has made several uh, appearances uh vocal appearances in our seminar in time past so we're wondering if uh uh Little Huan is stricken Matt here again. Um, let's move on to Joe. Matt, if you uh, if you have a if you have a chance uh, later on, feel free to 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 jump in if your microphone's working again. Uh, Joe, I really agree that uh, Belig really cares for Tor, and I just wondered also if there was a like a sense of loyalty to Thingol, like um you know because Thingol was supposed to take care of Tor, and and uh, he's supposed to kind of take care even though Tor left of his own free will. But I wonder if Belig just he was like, oh, you know, I'm going to make sure that he stays safe also. Because there's other responsibilities tied into this. Because I mean, he's—you can see—he's loyal to both people that he's serving here. Right, right, and it is true that Beleg is kind of Thingol's representative. Thingol is can can eat even less than Beleg afford to just pack up and leave and go chasing after um, after Turin himself. So Beleg is, in a sense, I agree with you, kind of doing doing Thingol a favor. Um, you can't leave the kingdom. And go and go track him down and and try to keep doing good for him. Um, but I will I will do that for you. That 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 seems fair. Um, they certainly the two of them speak speak uh, that way a little bit before he leaves the second time. Um, Matt, you want to give it another shot? Uh, yes. Can you hear me now? I can. Good. Hello. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, yes. Uh, 
No, I see a kind of a parallel between Beor, who was a willing vassal to the elves, and it almost seems to me like Beleg is a vassal to Turin. He's serving that role. He's subjugating himself uh, for uh, Turin's well-being. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's exactly what I was thinking of when I was using the word condescending, because that, that the, 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 the elves and the men are established on those kinds of footings from the beginning, where the humans come and take service um, with the elf uh, captains and kings. And we talked about that, you know, way back in the back in the chapter of, uh, you know, of men and the coming of men into the West, um, <clears throat> where we were discussing this before. It's like the best of the men um, and the best the best of the human families are the ones that most subordinate themselves to the elves and are sort of most humble in their service of the great elven lords. And here we see a great elven lord definitely humbling himself um, to chase after and assist uh, one one of the humans. So there is a kind of reversal there, which I, I think has the effect of really emphasizing Beleg's humility. Dave? I wanted Jason to raise his hand, but he didn't, because uh, I wanted him to set this up. He he asked the question in the text chat. He says, um, "Does this make Beleg a fool that he goes off with Turin, uh, you know, ostensibly to to help him and guide him and keep him safe, and then in the end, Turin basically gets him killed by behaving badly and or stupidly." Uh, and I would, I sort of, my answer to that, I think, is no. I, I think Beleg is not going with Turin thinking, well, I'll try to keep him out of trouble, and this will all work out great. Um, but rather, I think Beleg was making it, was committing an act of, um, of self-sacrifice. He subjugates himself and what he thinks is best to uh, going with Beleg and or going with Turin and trying his best to keep him safe, knowing full well that this could probably turn out badly for him. Yeah, I mean, he. he I think he. I think this is a, a clear example and a positive example, albeit a tragic example, uh, uh, in Tolkien of a character um, doing self-sacrifice of, of subjugating himself entirely to the the not even the good of another but basically knowing like I'm going to go with this guy and uh you know he's trouble uh but that's all right because it's important to me to support him yeah yeah and it is the one thing um the one thing that makes for me the death of Beleg bearable is the sense in which you know that's the fate that he was accepting um, from the moment he left the court, he was essentially giving his life over to to Turin and to helping Turin. And though, of course, one could look at that from the other from the other angle and say that you know that moment when Turin kills Beleg is like a representative of the whole thing. Like that, that's you know sort of in small what what has been going on all along um, that Turin is the one who is uh, who is causing Beleg to do this if Beleg you know and Beleg says to him you know hard you are Turin and stubborn if Turin had been less stubborn and just gone back to Doriath with him when he came back and said hey it's okay you're not gonna uh, you know you're pardoned everything's fine then you know Beleg certainly you know it, he's not going to end up destroying Beleg's life as he ends up doing he's not he's not going to put Beleg in the place to sacrifice himself for him but that doesn't change the fact that that self-sacrifice is still a really good thing um you know is is still 
is still uh, an unquestionably good and noble act. And so there is a sense, I think, in which Beleg's death is not in vain, you know, in which he does sort of accomplish something. Um, but uh, um, Elizabeth, go ahead. You had uh, something you wanted to add, I think? I just wanted to say I agree with Dave that it was definitely a self-sacrifice by Beleg. Uh, I mean, Melian essentially told him in as many words that, you know, he wasn't long for this world if he uh, if he took that sword and if he went after uh, Turin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think if, if there's a moment when Beleg really does seem um, susceptible to the accusation of foolishness, it's when he takes Anglachel basically against the pretty clear advice of Melian. Um, you know, uh, it's, you know, Melian says, there is malice in this sword. The dark heart of the smith still dwells in it. It will not love the hand it serves. Neither will it abide with you long. Um, and this, of course, starts the trend of nobody paying it. Well, it doesn't start the trend, continues the trend of nobody paying attention to Melian. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, which is which is sort of sad, but again, there's this sense of which Beleg. It's not just foolishness. I mean, I, this is not just Beleg being like, yeah, whatever. I'm not listening. I don't care. Um, but rather saying, you know, that's like that's fine. That's fine. I'm not looking for a long-term solution here. Um, I, I I I recognize that. Um, if it will serve me well in the short term, that's that's what I want. Um, I don't need a sword that loves me. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now let's see. Oh, let's. Oh, uh, Lembus. We should mention Lembus. We we have uh, we have the precedent for Lembus. Um, and the the giving of Lembus here should clearly point us to the one person who obviously does listen to Melian and pay careful attention to Melian, and that's Galadriel, who has been assiduously taking notes all of this time. Um, and we will see her when you read. Melian, you know, you, you see Thingol and Melian and Doriath, and you read all the things that Mel, how Melian talks, what she does, and then you go and read the Lothlorien um, sec- section of the Fellowship of the Ring, and you can see how similar Galadriel is to Melian, how much she is patterned after Melian. Um, she is absolutely like the little the. The, I mean, I don't want to call her little. She's the greatest, most powerful elf uh, still in Middle Earth in the Third Age. But she's also like you know this mini Melian that is uh, has set herself up there. She's clearly been taking notes. In fact, there's a passage um, in the Fellowship of the Ring which is almost a direct quotation or a direct paraphrase of uh, um, of a passage from this section. I'm thinking of the passage on page 205 um, when we're talking about the councils of Morgoth. Uh, one of those moments where the uh, the the camera kind of pans way out from this story, and now we're looking at the very very big picture. Um, uh, let's see. Who can measure the reach of his thought, who had been Melkor, mighty among the Ainur of the great song, and sat now a dark lord upon a dark throne in the north, weighing in his malice all the tidings that came to him, and perceiving more of the deeds and purposes of his enemies than even the wisest of them feared, save only Melian the queen? To her often the thought of Morgoth reached out, and there was foiled. Remember, Gladriel says almost exactly the same thing about Sauron to Frodo and Sam, saying that his mind... Uh, is reaching out to her and seeks to 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 uh, 
to to reach her and to penetrate her defenses um but that still the the way is shut and she makes this gesture that she's shutting off the mind of Sauron as it tries to reach towards her just as Melian does to Morgoth beforehand so as i said that the 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 parallels are really clear and we know that she's been hanging out with Melian and taking notes. So even though it doesn't really impact any of these stories, at least we can know there's one person paying close attention to what Melian's doing and saying. Um, now, uh, thinking about... No, we we haven't talked about Meme and the Dwarves at all yet, and we should do that. Um, let's see, we've got, we've got about half an hour left, so I want to... Uh, I want to look at Meme and then just sort of the time in in Amon Ruth and what we see there and then back to back to the power of Morgoth and the tragedy of Beleg here. We might not might not get to Gwyndor, but if we can at least get through the death of Beleg that'd be pretty awesome. So um Meme and the Petty Dwarves. Thought about Meme and the Petty Dwarves? Here again we see Turin acting kinda questionably at first. I mean that is um he is responsible, indirectly responsible, not personally responsible, but indirectly responsible for the death of another innocent person um, in, uh, in, in the son of Meme, uh, who is killed by the arrow. Um, but he, he seems to make it right, and Meme is really impressed. Meme is, uh, though, though it's kind of a dubious compliment uh, that Meme gives him, um, you know, when Turin makes his speech, this is on 203, Alas, I would recall that shaft if I could. Now, Baren Danweb, this house shall be called in truth, and if ever I come to any wealth, I will pay you a ransom of gold for your son, in token of sorrow, that would gladden your heart no more. Then Meme rose and looked long at Turin. I hear you, he said. You speak like a dwarf lord of old, and at that I marvel. That's the one I mean, being sort of a possibly a dubious compliment. You speak like a dwarf lord of old. Um, what, cumbrous and, <laughs> cumbrously and unlovely? Is that, is that, is that how he speaks? Um, what do we make of this? Joe, what are you thinking about the dwarves? Right, well, uh, just to cover briefly something about Meme, just how like almost opposite he is from the, the other dwarves, you know, because they're all like, ah, oh, I'm in your face, I'm a tough guy, and they're all, I mean, and they're, you know, kind of hardy, and then Meme, you know, says they sneak around, and uh, I mean, they're like kind of hunched over, and the, it says the elves didn't even recognize them before. I mean, it's just they're so much different. Um, and uh, I just, I guess that kind of covers that. And then uh, covering um, Torin's response to the death of Mim's son, it seems like it's also possibly I can't, I'm not really sure. The first time he sees the result of his actions with the gang of men, I mean, he's like, oh wow, we just killed someone's son. Yeah, that's, that's not good. I mean, um, but it, I mean, it seems like Torin actually steps up and does something like a man, like you said, I mean, he offers men what he can, what he thinks is right, and even though he knows it won't, he knows it won't make up for it, but it seems like there's a slight switch there, I mean, it doesn't really do a whole lot for his character, but he actually does something good there, almost, it seems like. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree, and I think that that, that idea of seeing the consequence of his actions, I think is a really important thing here. Um, I mean, again, we saw, you know, the moment that really changes his mind is when he sees that, you know, Beleg is being, is being, uh, has been captured uh, by his men. But, um, but I do think that this is, this is a moment where we can see um, another kind of insight into his recognition um, of the consequences of his actions. And I mean, thinking back to the conversation we were having before, especially, Elizabeth, the comments that you were making earlier, this is a moment in which he's now turning around. He's not Nathan, the wronged, anymore. Now he's realized, oh, I'm in the wrong. 
right? Now, now meme is the wronged. Um, and I'm going to pay a wear guild to him. I'm going to, and, 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 and the recognition, it's a really mature statement that he makes. Um, you know, that I will pay you a ransom of gold for your son in token of sorrow that would gladden your heart no more. I'm not going to try to make light of this and just say like, oh yeah, I'm going to give you lots of gold and then everything will be fine. Sort of recognize I can't reverse this. You know, I can't undo this. The consequences of my actions, of, you know, not his personal actions, but the consequences of the actions of, of, of my of my men, I can't undo. Um, but I can try to make it right as well as like, I, you know, I, I can recognize it. I can try to do the right thing. Um, and this is not him being like, oh, like I am wronged. Oh, you know, my wife is horrible, but recognize, but, but his, his confrontation with the grief, um, of meme. Um, and this is one of the first times that we see him really confronted with somebody else's grief besides himself. Um, and that I think is, uh, that does make this uh, a really a really crucial moment, I think. Yeah, Joe, go ahead. Sam, it doesn't say that uh, recently Turin like just reached his full manhood. I mean, like just right around that time, I mean, he's he's really just now becoming like a man. I mean, you hear about him doing all these great things, being in battle. He's, he was like seventeen when he started doing all that stuff. And, yeah. Like, and uh, I mean, he's just now becoming like a full fledged like man. And I mean, it's just if he just would have held off for a few more years, who knows what could have happened? But I mean. He, he's just now becoming a man. It seems like he's starting to grow up a little bit. No, it's true. I mean, I think that we, that is also an important thing to remember. This is um, a kind of, I mean, it's a kind of warped coming of age story in some ways. Um, but, 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 but there is a kind of coming of age story. If he seems rash and foolish, well, he is rash and foolish. Um, and if he seems to lack wisdom, that's not a, terribly surprising under the circumstances. Um, but we, we can see, and I think this is a moment where we really can see him gaining in wisdom. Um, now, Meme is a, is a different story. What do you make of Meme's perspective? Uh, do we have any, any Meme defenders, any Meme lovers or Meme haters out there? What do, what do people think of Meme? I can, I can see kind of going a couple different directions with Meme. Um, uh, Matt, what do you think? Well, I do f- sort of feel sorry for him. Um, I mean, they're not, he's not the most pleasant individual in the world, but, um, you know, they're, they're the last three of their kind. And basically they were just trying to be alone and try to, try not to interact with anybody and just, uh, live out their life themselves without worrying about what else is going on in the world. Yeah, see, they're, they're trying to mind their own business, and then we've got these these Noldor imperialists coming in, right, Dave? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting situation. I, I guess we're we're are we are we wading into the Turin Beleg uh, meme love triangle? Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. As Matt characterized it in our notes, a tri-species bromance. Yes, absolutely. Let's do that. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty awesome too, and it and it has the the fun little wrinkle that uh, that um, um, meme apparently absolutely hates elves because they say that meme and his family they don't just dislike the elves; they hate them every bit as much as they hate the orcs. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, which is pretty impressive. Um, that's, I mean, you know, because obviously the orcs are, everyone hates the orcs, and, and everyone generally hates the orcs more than they hate just about anybody else, but uh, not uh, Meme and his 
um, progeny and uh, family, they hate the elves every bit as much as the orcs. As far as they're concerned, there's no difference between the, the, the elves who are the good guys of this story and the orcs who are the sort of like mere opposites. Uh, and that's kind of interesting. And th see, this is yet another sort of case where, where Turin's decision puts him in a bat in a you know, unfortunate position. But then the 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 sort of the the real moving factor, the factor that really makes the difference, is something that's completely out of his control that he couldn't anticipate. Like, how did he know that Meme absolutely hated the elves and that um, Meme would go off, get captured, and turn on him um, and that sort of stuff? But it is kind of um, it is kind of unfortunate that that meme feels this way and that nobody sort of attempts to try and address this situation before it goes wrong. <laughs> they didn't notice that meme and his and his sons were sitting over in the dark corner murmuring when Belleg had visited and that that he had suddenly become um, sullen and wasn't speaking to anyone anymore. But they they say that Turin basically ignores him after Belleg shows up, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So you've got this whole jealousy thing going because meme really respected Turin and. Uh, at, which which seems to be out of character for Meme. I mean, Meme, um, yeah, he hates he 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 hates like everybody. You know, I mean, he's been wronged. Talk about somebody who identifies himself as the wronged. That's Meme, right? I mean, he's like you know, like he's like racially wronged. Everybody has been even the even the other dwarves, uh, even the non petty dwarves were pounding on the petty dwarves. Um, you know, so he has this sense of being you know the whole world is against him. But Turin he respects, and Turin he he comes to um, he comes to 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 admire, um, and then yes, only to see him uh, to you know turn away and start ignoring him when this when this darned elf shows up. And of course, the thing to remember, um, you know, that one story to sort of hold in contrast here, of course, when you think about that whole business about hating hating the elves as much as the orcs, is to remember the Battle of Five Armies in The Hobbit, right? You know, where you have an army of dwarves literally charging, like with holding weapons and running across the field about to fight an army of elves and humans. And then the orcs show up, and as soon as the orcs show up, everybody calls it off, uh, and and they start, and they immediately the dwarves and humans and and uh, and elves all get together, and now now they're a team, and uh, and and Dayan crosses the battle lines, and they immediately uh, start strategizing and 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 form up their battle against the goblins. Everything's off because it totally doesn't matter. It's now made utterly irrelevant by the fact that there are orcs on the scene. Um, so I mean that's that's that's. Um, like the 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 complete opposite perspective that Meme has here. Meme, okay, Meme wouldn't have an army like him and his son. But anyway, if Meme had an army, he's certainly not going to take that point of view. Um, but uh, but so yeah, I mean it's it's a it's it's a it is a pretty radical thing to say that he hates elves just as much. Um, and even and you know with Belly, it doesn't even matter. We're told that he hates the that he hates the Noldor most of our. Most of all, even though Dave didn't didn't rise to my uh, my goading him to talk about Noldor imperialism, but uh, uh, but anyway, he 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 hates the Noldor most of all, and but doesn't even care. Beg, he's a Sindar, he's fine, but no, 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 no good for meme. Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, so 
meme is certainly an. Go ahead. A target, Corey. You should have gone after Jordan. <laughs> I said you chose the wrong target. You should have gone after Jordan. Yeah, but Jordan is on the other side. See, you were the one who was making the anti-Noldor imperialism arguments before. Oh, so. you wanted me to. Oh, I see. You wanted me to jump on them. Oh, well, I, I figured you just you'd summed it up in one phrase. But <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, they do point out that that uh, that. That, you know, you remember back when they described how um, uh, Finrod Felagun had had you know had a dream and was told to go find this this wonderful or maybe it was um, no it was uh, somebody somebody from Doriath told him about this great cave yeah. that would make a great hiding yeah. place for Finkle his kingdom did. and hey you should go take this cave it'd be perfect for you and here we find out that oh that's right Meme and the petty dwarves actually dug it up and then then apparently Finrod went and stole it from them. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, uh, but I love how it was earlier. I love how earlier in the in the text it's presented as like, oh yeah, there's the, just this cave that happens to be over there. It'd be perfect for you. Go right ahead, have it. Yeah, yeah. So they'll see. You know, even that, even that. You know, because meme is. You know, we hear from meme about the fact that this was the that that was that that belonged to the petty dwarves before the Noldor came. Um, but you know. There are a couple different ways that we can conceive of this. Does this mean that we have this like horrible suppressed imperialist story where we have to where where we actually are supposed to imagine that Nargothron was just full of petty dwarves and that Finrod and his uh, and his Noldor come in and just massacre them all and they're like, okay, we've got to clear out the natives and then we can take over this land. Um, that so- meme almost makes it sound like that. But I'm not sure that that's actually true. Maybe. I mean, we're not told. Sorry? It was pretty much just like watching Avatar. Uh, that it's exactly. pretty much the same right. thing. Yeah, the, no. Ex- the, uh, the Noldor just came in with their advanced technology and just, you know, totally didn't understand and just destroyed everything. I mean, yeah. it's just like... There's probably a Noldor equivalent of the, uh, like, crazy military commander guy, too, I'm sure. Yeah, no, probably. It's probably Origins, actually. Why but... is James Cameron not telling this story? <laughs> yeah, it's... it's, it's uh, yeah, it's the Petty Dwarfs, they're not blue, they're not tall, but they're... Uh, um, yeah, no, it's almost uh, it's two stories. Again, from Meme's perspective, almost indistinguishable. But not sure that Meme's perspective is a completely objective perspective. Um, and I think that the the glimpse that we get of Meme after the fact, when we will meet Meme in a subsequent chapter, not not just at the... Uh, not, n- forget next week. In subsequent weeks after that, we will meet Meme one more time. Um, and I think that there we can see a, a certain amount of kind of self-delusion in him. Um, now, this is not to say that, I mean, his people were genuinely persecuted. I mean, we were told that they were hunted like beasts. Um, so we know that there was genuine persecution of the petty dwarves. But but again, not quite sure that his story is the only possible version of that story. But, but again, what we certainly get in meme is a kind of a parallel to, to Turin. Someone whose motivations are understandable, one could understand why a petty dwarf like him, under his circumstances, would be resentful of elves who have taken over the land and kicked him out of his ancestral home or whatever. Um, we can understand that. But at the same time, his attitude does not really seem that understandable. Beleg hasn't done him any harm. Beleg doesn't mean him any harm. Um, Beleg, in fact, 
you know, it, it, I mean, Belleg obviously is innocent here. Um, and Meme betrays Turin, you know, whom he whom he professes to admire. So, you know, obviously his own his actions not very admirable at the end of the day, even though understandable, of course. Um, now let's move on. Uh, we're starting to we're threatening to run out of time here. Um, let's get to let's see. Uh, Mike, do you want to? You had a a couple style time moments you wanted to do. Wait, time and, is running short. I'll just talk about. Uh, I like the imagery of uh, Morgoth's fingers extending like as part of a giant hand probing over all of Beleriand. That same language is echoed in Lord of the Rings. I think a couple of times. Yes. Where Sauron's uh, power is described as a as a as a hand or an arm of Sauron and and a finger probing, uh, you know, the, the the testing the defenses of Gondor. So great imagery there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in that that moment, um, you know, in that paragraph that I, that I already read a bit from, um, where that there's that there's that great shift in. Um, in narrative tone, there on page two hundred five, who ne- who knows now the counsels of Morgoth? Who can measure the reach of his thought? Um, this doesn't only just sort of signal a shift in the story, um, and you know, sort of signal the the next kind of downturn of Turin's career, but this reminds this is a very forceful reminder in the middle of this story that the curse of Morgoth is is efficacious. It works. It's powerful. Who can know the counsels of Morgoth? Who can measure the reach of his thought? Who had been Melkor, mighty among the Ainur of the great song, and sat now a dark lord upon a dark throne in the north? Um, he is not to be underestimated. And although we haven't seen him in this chapter, remember, I mean, we got the business with Hurin at the end of the last chapter, and now we go on this story and we don't, you know, we're, we're not being continually reminded of that curse, but we get this, we get this brief. Don't forget, this is Morgoth we're talking about. This is, this is, this is Melkor, mighty among the Ainur. Um, he still does have the power to make a curse. And Jason, as you pointed out in the notes, um, the name is important when he knows it does seem that Morgoth's, you know, the one glimpse that we get into sort of the mechanism of this curse, it does seem to be consciously directed. Like it's not just Morgoth can be like, okay, Hurin, wherever your children are right now, my curse is going to go upon them and they're not going to be able to escape it. When the son of Hurin is revealed by the helm, by his taking up of the dragon helm of Dor Loman, that's when Morgoth laughs. Uh, because now he knows he can bring his curse to bear on Turin again, because now he knows where he is and he knows who he is. Um, so I, that, that does seem to be, that does seem to be an important thing. Um, now let's end, and we're actually, I said we would end, um, with Beleg's great hunt and the, uh, unbelievable tragedy of Beleg's death. We've talked about this just a little bit, um, but uh, there are there are several more things to do, and I, I definitely want to read uh, that scene a little bit. Um, but, Elizabeth, there was a, a phrase that you were drawing attention to, which I think you were very right to draw our attention to. Um, do you think you'd be able to talk about that a little bit? Hello, are you there? I am, yes. Go ahead. 
I'm sorry, I lost you there. What was what was the last thing you said? I was just in our notes. You were pointing out um, a, a a passage from near the death of Beleg that uh, um, that you thought was really interesting, and I definitely agreed with you. And was wondering if you wanted to talk about that. Yes, I did. Um, it was the phrase um, um, when um, when Beleg um, draws the sword and he kind of uh, nicks Turin, and it says, um, and with it he cut the fetters that bound Turin, but fate was that day more strong, for the blade slipped as he cut the shackles. And uh, it seems to me that any time Tolkien says anything about fate is kind of this implied, um, uh, if fate it was, sort of thing. Right. Um, or if chance it was, and I think that that kind of is implied here as well, and it's kind of it's one of the the few occasions where I actually have a lot of sympathy for Turin because I think that this was a situation where it it wasn't fate, where there were forces acting, um, whether it was I guess Morgoth's curse, which is probably most likely here, or some other force that caused uh, this really horribly tragic situation um, that led to the death of Beleg. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, there are these moments when fate um, is discussed. I mean, we, we didn't talk about this much, actually, um, though we spent three weeks on Baron and Luthien. We didn't talk about fate all that much. And there are several moments in the Baron and Luthien story where their fate is alluded to um, as if there is, in fact, some kind you know, a, a destiny that is laid on them, that there is this external thing which is causing stuff to happen. Most notably, well, I guess most notably, um, when Baron first comes through the girdle of Melian in the first place, because it is his fate, this doom drives him. Um, and there is, there is a doom upon him that is greater than the power of Melian. And um, that, I think, is a really... Um, we need to ask the question. I think we're, we're invited to ask the question, what is that fate exactly? What is that destiny? Elizabeth, as you say, are we talking about the curse of Morgoth? It's certainly tempting to say that here. This certainly sounds, of all of the unfortunate things that have happened, this is surely the worst. It's the terrible, horrible irony of Beleg, you know, who, having just completed the most incredible rescue of all time, single-handedly pursuing uh, this orc host that has him captive and successfully rescuing him, and then just accidentally... The blade slipped as he cut the shackles, and Turin's foot was pricked, and then Tur- Turin's... And his reaction is perfectly understandable. This is not This is not even like, you know, I throw goblets at people's faces, and I strip them naked and make them run in the woods. This is not just like him, like, you know, being a little bit over the top in his reaction. To, you know, Turin was just being tortured. The, it, the, the orcs were throwing knives at him, okay? And so he, he sees this person standing over him with a sword and, and stabbing him. Um, in the you know it says you know it uses fairly gentle language and Turin's foot was pricked. Remember he fell asleep with them throwing knives at him for fun. So he has every reason to think that um, uh, that this is an enemy who is starting to torture him again. And when he finds his hands free and fights back uh, and 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 ends up of course killing his best friend and his deliverer. But then but again that question is well then what is that is that Morgoth? Or is it not Morgoth? Um, is that fate something else? What fate is more strong? And what's going on there? Um, Elizabeth, did you have uh, uh, further thoughts about that? 
Yeah, just one quick follow-up about the origin of the fate. One thing that makes me wonder if maybe it's not Morgoth is the the storm that comes out out of the west. Yes. Tolkien kind of makes a point of, of saying it comes from the west, so it makes me wonder if maybe this fate really is coming from, from the Valar and not really from Morgoth, and maybe this is part of the, the music, really, or part of the greater plan. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's pretty... Um, I think it's pretty remarkable um, that we get that reminder. Um, those, because, and really the the two reminders. Um, they the orcs run away afterwards. You know, it is a storm out of the west, which doesn't seem like a coincidence. And we get the reminder of the presence of the Valar um, right afterwards. That is at at Ithil Ivrin. Um, the springs of Narag, um, when Gwyndor gives his whole speech about, you know, uh, that she is fed from crystal fountains unfailing and guarded by from defilement by Olmo, Lord of Waters, who wrought her beauty in ancient days. You know, so afterwards we we get this, hey, re- remember the Valar, whose power is still operative right here. And then, as you say, right beforehand, the great storm rode up out of the west and lightning glittered on the shadowy mountains far away. Um, you know, the lightning, this is so we should be remembering Manway here um, and his and his power. You know, let's you know that the the lightning from the storm, you know, is like the the the, the power of Manway and the light of Varda. And um, yeah. And so is that the fate? Is it a good fate? That is, this is the good guy's fate, not the bad guy's fate, which is leading to the most horrible event that has happened here um it's uh it's it's a really interesting question and i want us to keep this in mind when we look at um you know he will give himself his ultimate name that is his name of turambar um master of doom or master of fate and uh i think that um if we um i i think we're going to want to come back to this and keep thinking about this but but i'm i was glad that Elizabeth was drawing our attention to this, uh, to that moment, because I do think that we, you know, we've been talking about Turin's choices versus Morgoth's curse, and at this moment we get sort of the 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 subtle interjection of a third thing, um, which I think we need to kind of think about and work through. Um, okay, well, I think. Let's see. We're, we're we're about out of time. I was just going to go on to talk a little bit more about uh, Gwyndor, but let's save Gwyndor for next time. We will start with Gwyndor, which will actually provide us with an excellent transition into Nargothrond, which is what we'll start with next time. Um, so we we will we will attempt to get through the rest of Turin next time. I, uh, I I think I think that we can do it. We'll do. Gwyndor and Nargothrond, and then we'll we'll do Glaurung, of course, the dragon, and then. Um, then Turin's time in 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 Brethel and his final confrontations with Glaurung. So I think we can do that in one week. We'll certainly and we will certainly attempt it next week. Um, thanks to everyone who has been joining us on the Middle Earth Network radio station, and of course thanks to you guys for your participation again this week. That was um, uh, that was that was a good discussion. I guess you guys have been been really active in thinking this stuff through in advance, which has been really great. Um, you know, I feel like uh, we've all been kind of doing homework a little bit better here recently to kind of pull things together in a little bit more organized way. So I've been I've been happy with how that's been going. Um, but anyway, thanks very much, and I will see everybody next week. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. 
and are still in high hopes. The drama will continue in our next episode, so check often to see when it comes up. This is Joe Stoll, signing off. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.